Tonight I want to talk about a specific quality of mind, a specific mental factor that arises, and that's the quality of grasping. It also happens to be with its kind of sister quality of craving, which is slightly weaker, the uh, second noble truth or the origin of suffering. So it's not a slight quality. And it's one which I imagine we're all somewhat familiar with as we sit here through the days. Grasping is a stronger form of craving. When the Buddha was first enlightened, as you know, his mind was not inclined especially to go out and teach because as he with his powers where he could survey the world and see what was going on anywhere that he looked, he saw that and he thought, this truth that I have discovered is very profound and hard to see. And you can't discover it by just thinking about it. But the wise person has to experience it for themselves. But what he saw when he looked around what he thought to himself, at least as tradition hands it down to us, is that the people in this generation, and I don't think it's changed much, rely so much on attachment, in fact delight in attachment, that it would be too hard for them to see the truth. Because basically attachment is blinding. And so his mind favored in action, as they put it. Now, one of the characteristics of a Buddha is that he has discovered the truth for himself and that he didn't have a teacher that said, this is what you do and this is the understanding you will come to. He discovered it by himself. And that was the case because at that time the teaching was not alive in the world. So had he decided not to teach, it could have been a serious decision for all of us, because Buddhas don't come along all that often. So, as you've heard the story, a being from a Brahma world came down and begged him to look around and see that there were beings with much dust on their eyes, but there were also a lot of creatures with just a little dust on their eyes, and that those people would be able to hear the teaching and learn. And the Buddha saw that, and in seeing that, decided to teach. I relate to the dust on our eyes as being this grasping, the tendency of the mind to grasp and thus blind us. So when the Buddha did start teaching, the first sermon that he gave was these Four Noble Truths. The first one being the truth of unsatisfactoriness or dukkha, which we've talked a lot about, all the various levels of it, grief, birth, death, sickness, old age, lamentation, despair, on and on, the whole list. The second truth is that of the origin of this dissatisfaction. The origin on a moment-to-moment level one can look at it. And that's this quality of craving in the mind, which produces renewal of being. Because we're, and it's suffering because we're craving what is elusive, what's insubstantial, what can never bring satisfaction. And also when craving is present in the mind, it blinds one to a clear perception of truth, to a clear perception of reality in that moment. And this is suffering. And it leads to a perpetuation of more of the same. The other two truths, of course, I don't really want to talk about them, but I hate to just mention the first two without adding the second two because it's too pessimistic sounding. So the third one, of course, is that there is a cessation and ending to the suffering. And the fourth truth is the path to that ending, or this eightfold path that all of us here are on at this moment.
also to focus on the second truth. The difference between craving and clinging or grasping can be thought of as craving is similar to someone who's groping in the dark to steal an object. It's that the mind is inclining towards that object. But grasping corresponds to actually reaching out and grabbing it. You're really stealing that object at that time. And that goes on to give rise to concepts of I and mine, of self. (coughs) So classically, there are talked of the six-fold realms of grasping, six-fold realms of clinging. And that is that as Joseph spoke of the other night, there are only six types of sense objects that ever arise in our field of experience. That's eye objects, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, sensory, and with the mind. And they're just changing one after the other, one after the other, coming and going with incredible rapidity. And whenever there's contact between any sense object, sense base, such as a sight, the eye, and the knowing of that, when there is that contact of those three coming together, at any contact, that is when grasping can arise. And that is why mindfulness is so important. Because when we're mindful of the process, For instance, there's contact, a smell arises, consciousness of a smell. The feeling arises that it's pleasant. And there's craving. The mind just kind of inclines towards that smell, recognizes it as bed-breaking, bread-baking, say. With mindfulness, that can be seen, and it doesn't have to turn into any big story. It's a pleasant smell, the mind inclines towards it, and that's all. And wisdom arises, can arise from that seeing, from seeing the process. And in that moment of mindfulness, the grasping does not arrive, does not arise. And this is the purification. In that moment of seeing the process, the clinging fades, the craving fades, and the mind is in that moment purified. And suffering then does not proceed to follow from that pleasant sensation. But when it's not seen, when we don't see that moment so clearly, it would go ahead, the craving would tend to strengthen into grasping. Oh, that bread smells so good. I would really like to have a piece. I'm really hungry. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this sitting. And it can go on and on. The mind becomes become really fixated on that particular experience. And as one moment conditions the next, the grasping can grow stronger and stronger. We become less and less present. And that, to me, is what the Buddha meant by having dust on our eyes. We don't know what's happening when we're blinded by grasping like that. The Buddha said, For some people contact, the point where sense plus object meet is enthralling. And so they are washed by the tides of being, drifting along an empty, pointless road. Nowhere is there any sign of broken chains. But other people can come to understand their sense activity. And because they understand it, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does. And so their craving ends. And they realize the total calm. So that sounds quite lovely. And a lot of the time, it's not so neat and tidy. You know, we don't, oh, I see the contact, and 
I notice craving, and no problem, it's gone. I mean, a lot of the time we wake up way far down the road in some dream of eating a gourmet meal in a Parisian restaurant, and we have to really think back to figure out how we got there. Oh yeah, there was that smell of bread baking ten minutes ago, and I didn't notice it. Grasping can be very compelling. And what can happen from waking up from a fantasy like that is you go to lunch and bread isn't served. We're having millet and some kind of vegetable stew. And there's incredible aversion in the mind. Whereas perhaps yesterday you were craving millet. And so it kind of does a flip. Not only was one lost and blinded by the grasping to what was present in the sitting, but one is unable to appreciate what is actually present when you get to lunch because the grasping to that idea of that smell is still going on. When grasping is in the mind, we can't appreciate what is present. It's like the story of the pickpocket in the time of the Buddha and the Buddha was giving a discourse and all these people were sitting there and this is during the time when many of the suttas end and all 500 people became enlightened. And so it was worthwhile listening to one of his discourses. But the pickpocket could see only people's pockets because that's what the grasping mind was focused in on. Wanting the money, wanting people's valuables and totally blinded to anything else that's going on in the environment. And so our practice here, knowing how blinding grasping can be, is not to judge it or fear it or condemn it or condemn ourselves for getting caught in it, but just to see it, to understand it when it arises. Krishnamurti says, Unless the ways of desire are understood, illusion is inevitable. And the Buddha also encourages us to understand how grasping works. He says, there are many kinds of suffering in the world, and all of them grow from the same source, grasping. When a person knows no better, She or he gives way to this grasping and slow and dulled goes through one misery after another. So do not create this for yourselves. Use your knowledge to see how suffering begins and develops in attachment. So how can we begin to use our knowledge to see this except by investigating grasping itself when it's arising. Not hating it, not trying to shut it out, not trying to pretend it's not happening and we're really equanimous, but by really looking at it. The experiential nature of desire, of grasping, is the only way we'll really come to understand it. So one way to begin to experience it is just very simply in a physical level just imagine what it's like you're sitting calmly objects are arising there's a thought there's a sensation there's the in and the out the rising the falling an image a sound you're kind of noticing and noting nothing very much and suddenly one arises and then my aha this one what does that feel like in that moment I personally experienced almost as if the body were lurching forward like that, a tightening, a sense of being off balance. It's not comfortable. It's actually the experience of grasping itself is unpleasant. It's unbalanced. And what's happening in that moment that the grasping has arisen? Out of that flow of rapidly changing objects of awareness, perceptions, sounds, images, thoughts, one particular one has been isolated and grasped onto. And through that identification with it, 
comes a whole flow of constructions, a whole self-image gets to be created, a whole sense of separation of me and other. Our perception becomes distorted in that moment. The mind becomes unbalanced. It becomes wavering and unsteady. It can't really see so clearly what's going on. Never mind appreciating what's going on. We can't really experience or know the interrelatedness of things, of the world, of life, of our experience, when there's grasping in the mind. Because when something has been isolated and grasped onto, a thought, a memory, a sound, a self-idea, in that moment there's an immediate separation between me and other me and the world. And there's no real sense of interconnectedness. There's me, the object grasped after, and everything else is in the way. Two examples. One, using the very common retreat experience of the, the VR or Vipassana romance, that person that you're just so fascinated by, even though you may never have spoken. And say you're in your usual walking space, walking very mindfully, very connected with the sensations, lifting, moving, placing. The mind is quite calm. And this person just walks across the field of vision and walks away. And there's not really an awareness of seeing, but there's an awareness of pleasant experience. And wow! That person, maybe they're going to come walk here right next to me. Wouldn't that be far out? Or maybe I'll be able to sit next to them at lunch. Or, gee, I wonder if they even notice that I'm here. I wonder if I should leave a note on their zafu, and on and on and on. In that moment, what's happened to the clarity of seeing? Are you aware of anyone else in the room? You might be. You might wish that they'd leave so that that person would have room to come and walk next to you. The same when you go into the dining room. Are you aware of the environment? Are you aware even of your own feet touching the floor? The the perception has become very distorted by this grasping after. It's not even grasping after the reality of a person being there. It was just a pleasant sight that walked by and has been gone for 10 minutes. But the grasping mind continues to build on it. And when one really tunes into that, it's actually quite unpleasant, very out of touch, very separative. Contrast it to a time when you're walking, perhaps in the same place, but very calm mind, very tuned into just the perception of lifting the foot. Perhaps there's tension and pressure. There's awareness of some thoughts coming and going. And there's that sense of real pristine beauty Perhaps you just look up and see the sunlight and there's a sense of how beautiful that is and then that's let go and on with the walking. And there's, there can be this feeling of real calm and perfection just in that moment. Nothing much happening, very ordinary. So what's the difference? The only difference can be that there's no grasping in the mind. And when there's no grasping in the mind, It's possible for the perception to be very clear and undistorted. There's not any isolating. There's no sense of having to separate me from there, from other. And it's possible to know very clearly what's present and really appreciate it because the mind is free from grasping in that moment. This is a taste of the peace of mind, of non-grasping. That sense of completeness in the moment, of nowhere to go, nothing to want. Just a sense of wholeness and completeness. And as we continue to investigate, to develop our mindfulness, to see and understand the nature of this attachment, those moments become less rare as our practice continues. I want to give one other 
um, slightly less subtle example of how blinding and distorting grasping can be. Kind of a not a retreat example. Just so we're all clear that grasping also arises when we're not on retreat. Although we might not see it in quite such a subtle way. This happened, was experience that happened to me when I was in England a couple of years ago, visiting a friend of mine, an American. And I only had a week, and I had to be back here. I had one of those tickets you can't change or you lose all, all your money. And I had to be back here to be back to work, so I didn't feel, I felt the pressure to be back. And so he, we, we lived in the south of England, and we drove up to London, and we're staying in a friend's apartment for the night, and I was going to get the train to the airport the next morning. The friend wasn't there, and we have several friends in London, but none of them were there. So the next morning, I had called a cab. I was getting ready to go, and he got struck with the idea that he really had to drive me to the airport. It wasn't just kind of a little idea. I mean, he was on his knees begging, could he take me to the airport? And I said, it's really fine. It's easy to get the cab. I'll take the subway. It goes right to the airport. No problem. And we had this discussion in an hour about five times with increasing franticness on his part until finally I couldn't stand it anymore. I said, okay, okay, I'll cancel the cab. You can take me to the airport. Now, this was his grasping. This was because he wanted to spend a little more time with me. So already this last hour together had been miserable because we'd been arguing about this the whole time. And by this time, I think I had, I had about two hours before the flight. Now, the thing is, he didn't, had no idea how to get to the airport, <laughs> and neither did I. And, and our friends were all out of London, and the only map we had is these London A to Zs, which are great if you know where you are but they're just they're little squares. They're about 100 pages, and they just have a few blocks on each page. So you can find where you are, and then you just kind of get this. So go to page 47. You flip to 47, and you just find where you are, and you're already off it again. And it's not like you can just turn page after page. It's, it's scattered all through the book. Plus, you have to know which direction you're going in, and we didn't. So we called around. He thought of someone, finally got directions. And the person said, but it'll probably take you a good hour and a half. I mean, by this time, I had an hour and 45 minutes. It'll take you an hour and a half to get there. So we got in the car, and I... Now, he was fine. He got what he wanted at this point. I went crazy. I was just a bundle of tension and nerves, and all I had in my mind was, I've got to get that plane. I've got to get that plane. I couldn't hardly talk to my friend. He was just in the way. Any car on the road was in the way. Anything that happened was in the way of this grasping in my mind. I've got to get that plane. So we managed to zip down, and I was flipping through the the map book like crazy. (laughs) And we were going down through the instructions, and we got onto the motorway. And as, as soon as we had gone about a mile in the motorway, we came to total dead stop traffic jam. And there was just absolutely no movement. And since we didn't know where we were, we couldn't really get off on the exit because we would have been completely lost. So we were just stuck there. And my grasping kind of came to a total head at that point and burst because I thought, right, right, I'm going to miss the plane. Well, that's okay. You know, I've never missed a transatlantic plane before. It'll be interesting. (laughs) And the fact that the grasping ended, I really settled back. I started enjoying the ride. I started looking around. And I saw how... The only difference in that situation was the presence or absence of grasping in my mind. And I started enjoying myself. Unfortunately, my friend at this point went into grasping mode, and he was (laughs) miserable. (laughs) And then anyway, the traffic moved. We got to the airport with about 10 minutes before the plane was supposed to go. So that got my grasping going again. And everyone in the airport was seriously in my way at this point. I mean, seriously, the point where I was butting in ahead of people, stepping at the head of huge long lines, of course, at Gatwick, and butting in ahead and asking people if I could, could get in ahead of them. But not with a sense of, of interaction with that person. Of oh, I mean, I, I said to them, excuse me, could I get in front of you? But it wasn't a sense of real communication. This was an object out there in my world and in the way. And it was a very illuminating, I did make the plane, it was a very illuminating experience. I couldn't, of course, at the moment I wasn't going, isn't this interesting grasping arising in the mind? (laughs) But on reflecting back, 
I saw how divisive it is and how compelling that force of grasping was. And it really showed me that how when the mind is filled with grasping, there's no clear discernment is possible. You can't really judge what is appropriate or suitable action. Like my friend couldn't really judge that it wasn't really so appropriate or suitable to drive me to the airport. I mean, it was fine for me to take the tube and a lot easier. The grasping blinded him to that. And my basic grasping at wanting him to be happy and please him also blinded me to that. And I you know, went along with the whole thing. You just can't see clearly when it's going on. And as we continue to observe day by day here, we see not only is it incredibly strong, but how often does the tendency of grasping arise in a day, in just one sitting? How often does it come up? And so I think it's really important for all of us to appreciate just how deep this underlying tendency of grasping is, how quick it is to arise, and of how really awesome the journey of discovery is that we're on. And that the importance of patience and equanimity in this process can't be overstressed. It's not that we'll just see grasping arise a few times and be free of it. It's a very, very deep underlying tendency and to have respect for the work that we're doing here and a lot of patience. It may not seem like a lot, you know, when you're sitting there and you become aware that the mind is grasping, say it a thought of what a good sitting you wish you were having. And on noting the grasping, it fades and you go back to rising, falling. That may seem like no big deal. But really, that is an important moment because it's a movement in that moment from blindness and distortion of mind towards clarity, towards freedom. And in that moment of mindfulness, it's strengthening succeeding moments of mindfulness. So don't underrate these little moments of seeing clearly. They're very valuable. Classically, there's talked about four fourfold grasping, four large areas in our lives where grasping takes place. <coughs> the first one is the area of sense desire, which is rather obvious and rather huge. It's defined as, I like this definition of grasping to sense desire, laying a firm hold on. It implies the inability to shake off a thing even after experiencing great pain due to it and perceiving its many harmful consequences. I can really see how often do I do that? How often do any of us do that? Continue to hold on to, go after something that we've experienced pain from over and over. I mean, just a simple, maybe not so simple, area of eating. How often do I sit and keep eating something when I know I'm full, when I know in half an hour I'm going to not only feel physically uncomfortable, but be mentally, if not just berating myself, berating myself if not a lot worse, and then the next day do the same thing, or two hours later do the same thing, all the while knowing that that's what's going to happen. But the grasping in that moment is just too strong, and I just don't see it. I mean, we all do that very often. The Buddha spoke a great deal in very graphic terms sometimes about the perils of sense pleasures, about the dangers that there are in sense pleasures. He likened them, these are some of the less graphic similes, to something borrowed because the owner takes it back. Or sense pleasures are like a dream because when you wake up, they're gone. And I just want to say a little bit about this, that 
it's not so much to see sense pleasures or pleasant sensation as something bad or that when one enjoys sense pleasures there should be a sense of guilt or sin or a lot of our Western conditioning around it. Not that at all. Or even necessarily that in order to understand one has to, okay, renounce all sense pleasures and go live in a cave in the Himalayas. I think it's really important to see that the danger is not that pleasant sensation is inherently bad, but that when there is contact with the pleasant, with sense pleasure, that underlying tendency of mind to grasp is so strong, it's just so strong, and we're so unused to being mindful of it, it can be so hard to see, that it can be so overwhelming that we're so easily cast into blindness from it. It's so easy to get lost in the cycle of grasping and becoming and wanting more and suffering from it. And in doing that, we're unable to see what's really going on. And that's the danger. Just last night, for example, I was driving back home in the evening, and it was a lovely clear night, and the full moon was just rising in front of me, really big. It was really beautiful, if I had been really noticing it. But however, I was playing a tape on the cassette, and I really only wanted to hear about one one-minute portion on this tape, and I didn't know where it was. So I was, you know, back and forth, back and forth, trying to find this one minute. And I wasn't noticing the moon. I wasn't noticing how I felt. I wasn't noticing the music. Then I decided to quit going back and forth. I said, well, it must be around here, and I just left it. But every time a new little part would start, I think, oh, that's it. Oh, no, it's not. Then I sit back and I didn't enjoy the music that was playing. I would look and go, oh yeah, the moon's pretty. And it was a reflex. I, I wasn't able to appreciate the moon. I wasn't able to appreciate anything because I was grasping after this one little piece of music, you know, one little minute of music. I mean, who cares? But I spent the whole ride doing that. I never heard the piece of music and I never really appreciated the moon. And this is one little tiny incident in a day of many incidents like that. You know, and we like to think that we're a bit more, more aware and paying attention. So that's how easily we can get lost in sense pleasures. I mean, that wasn't even a pleasure. It was the anticipation of a sense pleasure that I never had. So it doesn't work. Grasping at sense pleasures just doesn't work. It's like trying to quench thirst with, with salt water. You know, you just need more and need more and you never get to where you feel satisfied. The danger in sense pleasures and is not in the objects themselves, but in not seeing the clinging. This is a quote from Lama Yeshe. Most of us do not know what renunciation means. We are disturbed when we hear about giving up attachment to sensual pleasures, which we take to mean having to suffer in order to achieve inner liberation. But renunciation does not mean that we must give up happiness or that it is desirable to suffer. On the contrary, our aim is to achieve a state beyond suffering, The aim of most of our daily lives is to try to satisfy each desire as it arises, day after day, month after month, year after year. We try to achieve happiness by perpetuating something that is essentially transitory. This expectation, stemming from a misconception, can never be fulfilled and is therefore totally irrational. And so it's also not to fall into the other extreme of fearing, you know, contact with something pleasant. Oh my God, you know, if I experience a pleasant sensation, I'm going to be lost in craving and grasping. I have to go and hide. That's just the flip side. It's just as unbalanced as being lost in craving. But it is to develop, our practice is to develop through the mindfulness and the clear seeing, a balance of mind, 
a mind that is equanimous, that doesn't need to move toward the pleasant and try to perpetuate it, that doesn't need to flinch back in fear from the unpleasant and try to get away with it, away from it. A mind that is steady and not needing to spend its life running back and forth towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. Suzuki Roshi said that renunciation does not consist in giving up the things of the world, but in accepting that they go away. And that's a mind of balance, a mind that's calm. Our daily life, not when we're on retreat, but in our daily life, in this culture, we are subjected to such a bombardment of sensual input. And so much of it is potentially pleasant. It's so easy in our lives to move from one pleasant sensation to the next, to the next. If there's something unpleasant, we can usually find something pleasant to move to, to avoid it. It's such a whirlwind. And we can get so lost in this whirlwind of constantly shifting pleasant sensations that it's very difficult in our daily life to be able to be aware and see the process of grasping as it arises to see how it's bringing on suffering. Because it's very easy to skip from one object when we aren't satisfied by that. It's very easy to skip on to another object and to not really stop long enough to see that it's the search itself that's bringing us the suffering. So here, one of the real benefits of being here, this environment is so controlled and the sense input is so much more restricted than in our ordinary daily lives. True, the mind can find plenty to grasp at. It just kind of moves from something big like wanting to go to the movies to something little like, what time shall I have my cup of tea and how many shall I have today? But it's so much more restricted that it becomes more easy to see the process. And this is really valuable. I mean, in our daily lives, it's a rare experience when strong craving arises and turns into grasping. It's a rare time that we say, well, I'll just sit here and see what this feels like. I mean, we're so conditioned, grasping, right, go for it. Do something to get away from it. But if you're sitting here, true, many times grasping comes up in the day and you're halfway through a walking period and suddenly you find you're halfway out the door and over to the tea urn before you've noticed it. But many other times, you might be sitting in here and the strong thought arises, gee, I'd really like to go have that snack I stashed away at lunchtime. But you're not really going to bound up in the middle of the sitting, hopefully, and go out and get the little pack of raisins that you save for 35 days and suddenly have to have right now. Now, if nothing else, peer pressure will keep sitting there. And so that is a great opportunity to actually experience what grasping feels like, to see that whole process, to sit there and be mindful and feel what grasping is like. You might find that it's unpleasant. You might find that it's really unbalancing. And also that it's okay. It's really not all that terrible. It's quite possible to sit and experience the physical and mental processes and experiences of grasping. And from doing that, we learn that we can be with grasping. We don't have to run to a new experience each time grasping arises just in order not to feel the grasping. And we start to see that a lot of the reason we're driven by grasping is just to get out of that state of grasping itself. What's so pleasant about achieving the desired result? the grasping stops until the next moment it arises again and then we have to go grasp and get something else. So the chance to sit here and be with it without doing anything about it but just experiencing it with bare attention and mindfulness is a great opportunity. And so when it arises, there's no need to curse it but to welcome it as a chance to learn.
And as we continue to do this over and over, to see this process with mindfulness, understanding begins to grow from this clarity of seeing. And with it also grows the equanimity of mind. And we are begin quite naturally to be able to greet sense objects with detachment. Now by detachment, is not meant, you know, a kind of a negative quality of aversion or denial, or even the detachment of, right, I see that object over there, and I'm detached from it, and equanimous. But detachment meaning really a dissolving of the attachment, that sense of equanimity, of peace. The Buddha said, through dispassion, one is freed. The second area of grasping, the first one is sense desire, sense pleasures. The second area of grasping is at views. And this also is a huge area. Now by views is meant the tendency of mind that leads one to think that this alone is true. Everything else is false. And this, again, is blinding. and we do it a lot, to hold to any one view, any view at all, limits our world. It limits the possibilities of what we can see, what we can understand, what we can experience and know. Because we tend to accept only the facts that corroborate our already held view. The stronger we're grasping onto the view the harder it is for us to accept any evidence that goes against our view. It's easy to see how this works, say, in the world of politics. I thought of it a lot watching the presidential debates where the the two men would just be sitting there kind of spouting out their views. And there was no sense of a meeting of really listening. Oh, well, maybe what you say might be true. I mean, they would say totally the opposite thing from each other on a given point, and you'd sit there and they couldn't both be true. One doubted if either of it was true. And there was certainly no sense of trying to open up the views of either person to let in what the other person was saying. Just very rigidly defined world. And the whole effort seemed to be to try and get everyone who was listening to buy into one person's view or the other without a sense of real... Real questioning. It was scary, actually. I found it scary. The Buddha told a story also about how views can so blind us that we can't see the truth when it confronts us in the face. And there was um, a man who was a widower, had a young son, about five or so, And once when he was out, the man was out, the son was home, some robbers came and burned down his house and the whole village and kidnapped his son. And the man came back and saw this whole ruin and he found a little charred corpse and he assumed it was his son and of course was incredibly upset and wailing and moaning and just really beside himself. And he had the little corpse cremated and had a very nice bag made for the ashes and took it with him everywhere. And he couldn't get over it. I mean, he carried the grief and the lamenting with him everywhere he went. It was just felt as though his life were ruined. And rebuilt his house and continued living, but in total misery. And one night, some months later, his son, who had escaped from the robbers, found his way back to his father's new house and was knocking on the door about midnight And the man was yelling, who's out there? He said, Father, it's I, your son. He said, impossible, my son's dead. He said, no, Father, really, it's I, your son. I've escaped, I've come back. And the man was so locked in his view of what had happened that he said, no, way, are you my son? I have my son's ashes here, go away. He wouldn't come down, he wouldn't open the door, he drove his son away and never saw him again. And it just shows how strongly we can be caught in views that we create ourselves and unable to open to what is true if it doesn't corroborate our view. 
And we do this all the time in sitting. I mean, how often are you sitting here and have a certain kind of sitting go, oh, so that's what a good sitting is. That's what good concentration means. In that moment, there's a view. All those experiences in that sitting come to mean good concentration. And if that is grasped onto, adhered to, then all other experiences are going to be judged by that view. Now that view might have, that sitting might have had nothing to do with good concentration. It might have just been pleasant. Or even if it did have to do with good concentration, holding onto that sense of that, that view of it, is going to blind one to any further or different experience because one is trying to recreate what one views as good concentration. And how often do we do that just in a single sitting? There's lots of stories in the sutras about how people would come to the Buddha and question him about all these different there were a lot of teachers around at the time and they all professed different views and different explanations of the universe and of teaching and of Dharma. And they always wanted him to say which one was right, which one was wrong, which one did he agree with. And he would never get involved in any of them. He would never associate himself with any view. And he'd say it's because holding to any opinion, any belief, brings conflict. It brings contention. It brings conflict both with others and within our own self. One thing he said is that people with views just go around annoying one another. Because when you have a view, then you have to prove it to somebody who doesn't agree with you, or you have to uphold it, or you have to convince them, or they have to convince you. And it just leads to conflict. I mean, we can see at its ultimate level, it leads to wars. And it's really scary, the power of grasping at views. It leads to conflict within ourselves, within our own mind. Just again, back to the examples of sitting and how easily we can form a view from something that happens and grasp onto it. So you can, there can be the view, I'm not having many emotions arising. I must be suppressing and doing something wrong. There can also be the view, I'm having too many emotions arising. I'm not mindful enough. I'm doing something wrong. Or, oh, finally, here's bliss. This is what it's supposed to be like. And then the whole rest of one's retreat is spent trying to recreate that state of bliss. As soon as one has formulated a view and grasped at it, it's the grasping that brings the suffering. One is in conflict with oneself Either the view that that's what my experience is like, I'm suppressing emotions and I'm not, I'm not doing it right, is in conflict with other views that we hold of how it should be done. And they don't go together. And we suffer. We're in conflict. And we do that all the time. And as soon as we uh, can see a view and let go of it, the tendency is very strong to adopt another one in its place. I watch this in my practice all the time. On just real subtle levels, I'll be sitting, noting, watching things happen. And, and I'll hit a certain point where, say, the noting is going very fluidly, and it feels good. Now, it usually feels good for a view to arise that this is how it's supposed to be. So it's always a good one to watch out for. And say, so, oh, that's it. Okay, now I've got it. And then, then it'll start going. It won't go that way anymore. It'll start to be more difficult. I'll start to suffer. And in that suffering, I'll look a little closer and I'll see, oh yeah, I had grasped onto that as a view. And I let it go. And in the next moment, I come up, but now this is how it really is. And I've watched that over and over and over again. This is a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. Sometimes, somewhere, you take something to be the truth. If you cling to it so much, when the truth comes in person and knocks at your door, you will not open it. Guarding knowledge is not a good way to understand. 
Understanding means to throw away your knowledge. You have to be able to transcend your knowledge the way people climb a ladder. If you are on the fifth step of a ladder and think that you are very high, there's no hope for you to climb to the sixth. The technique is to release. The Buddhist way of understanding is always letting go of our views and knowledge in order to transcend. This is the most important teaching. So again, it's not that views in themselves are inherently harmful or inherently cause suffering. It's just important to recognize them when they arise as views and not to grasp at them as manifestations of the truth. To see when there's a view in the mind and to see when grasping arises to that view. When we don't see the grasping, then suddenly we have a new truth that we're guiding our life by. And again, it's not a rejection of knowledge, a rejection of methods of practice. They can certainly, and we are certainly using them as skillful means, but it's to see them for what they are and not to grasp onto them and get lost in that. The Buddha said, one who is freed does not concur, does not dispute with anyone. She or he employs the speech currently used in the world without misapprehending it. So it's not that we say, well, I don't have anything to do with views. I don't have anything to do with sense of I. And so, you know, we can't even relate to people because there's no other way to relate than by using our common speech. But we don't misunderstand and misapprehend a view to be the truth. And so in our practice here, it's just to know when a view has arisen, to see it as a view, to know if there's grasping in the mind to that view, or if there's no grasping in the mind. And this applies to views about everything, about truth, about practice, about enlightenment. As the third Zen patriarch said, Do not search for the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. The other two fields of grasping, I don't really have time to talk about much. I'll just mention them. The third one is grasping at rites and rituals, which can be explained as having the idea that one can make oneself perfect and then so grasping at external, outward behaviors, rituals, rites, in order to become perfect. And that's different from a committed investigation of the actual nature of the mind and body to come to know the truth. It's just looking at what's actually going on, rather than grasping at a particular ritual to make oneself perfect. So it's not, obviously, to discard method and technique. They're obviously valuable tools, but also not to mistake in the Zen parable of the finger pointing at the moon, not to mistake the finger for the moon. The fourth field of grasping is a huge one, and that's grasping at the self-idea the idea of I, which could be several whole talks in itself. And that's defined as considering the ever-changing world in the light of a permanent, unchanging essence, sense that there's some permanent, unchanging self that's considering the world. Also, it can be seen as the latent, underlying tendency 
to identify with any experience whatsoever that comes up. So it's not as if there's this solid self-idea there, but there's this latent tendency which arises very frequently to grasp onto something and identify with it and make a self. For example, just an easy example, um, in your sitting, there's an unpleasant sound, there's contact, an unpleasant sound, it's unpleasant, aversion arises, and that's grasped onto, the aversion. And in that grasping, the feeding it, it turns into anger that's really full-blown. The more grasping becomes my anger. I'm really angry at that person for moving and destroying my concentration in this sitting. And it can go on and on, either building up to self-justification about what a jerk that person is and how right I am, or the other side, self-condemnation, they're doing the best they can, I have no right to be angry, I'm such a horrible person after all. Either way, moving from that grasping, isolating out that particular experience of the unpleasantness and the aversion, and through that grasping, all the construction and build-up, How solid has the sense of me, of self, become in that moment of self-justification or self-condemnation? The I is very solid in that moment. And through the process of grasping on and identifying with a particular experience. And so this tendency of grasping and identification with experience is so strong. And this is the grasping at the I idea, the self idea. As I said, this is a huge, a huge topic, and I just, I just want to mention it quickly there. If that's not grasped at, the aversion, even if it is grasped a little and moves to anger, but then the grasping is seen and let go, the anger will be there for a while, it's experienced, and then it just kind of dissolves or floats away or turns into something else. And the the sense of self is not nearly so strong. It fades out with the identification, maybe to arise again in the next moment with the next grasping and identification. Again, I just want to emphasize that this is not about condemning the quality of grasping or judging ourselves when we find that we're really caught in grasping. Actually, at that moment, that's identification with the grasping. But what we're doing here is just using this opportunity that we have, a rare opportunity for most of us, to begin to be able to see this process, to see how powerful it is and to respect that to see it's arising and through that seeing and the times that we get caught to begin to understand how blinding it is. And through the mindfulness of it, when it arises, through that seeing, wisdom also arises and the bondage of grasping can begin to weaken it can begin to arise less strongly. This is Krishnamurti. We are forever craving something, and having tasted many things which were mostly unsatisfactory, we now want the ultimate thing, God, truth, or what you will. We want a result, a new experience, a new sensation that will endure in spite of everything. We never see the futility of result, but only of a particular result. So we wander from from one result to another, hoping always to find the one that will end the search. And so it's possible through this practice of mindfulness 
and of seeing the process of the search and the suffering that comes from the grasping, it is possible to end the search through this investigation, through this practice of mindfulness that we're all engaged in. Because when they understand their sense activity, the stillness fills them with delight. They see just what contact does, and so their craving ends. They realize the total calm. And it really inspires me to feel that that's a possibility for all of us to really understand through our clear seeing and mindfulness this process, the process of contact, the process of grasping, and to begin to realize the calm and peace. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.